Today's show is sponsored by Public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express, too. So, if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing. 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024 and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing. Member FINRA SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into partner banks where they earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high dash yield dash account. It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week. What's the state of corporate governance? The deficit is a real issue. The U.S. economy continues to send mixed signals. The financial stories that shape our world. Fed action to calm concerns over dollar liquidity. Some encouraging China data. The 500 wealthiest people in the world. Through the eyes of the most influential voices. Larry Summers, the former Treasury Secretary. Starbucks CEO Kevin Johnson. SEC Chairman Jay Clayton. Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. Be careful what you wish for. More vaccines and stimulus point toward recovery, but it looks like it's going to be a bumpy ride. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week. I'm David Weston. Maybe the most important development of the week, not just for markets, but for all of us, was Johnson & Johnson joining the elite club of approved vaccine providers, adding its millions of doses to the battle against COVID. We talked to J&J chairman and CEO Alex Gorski about how they did it and how fast they can get that vaccine into people's arms. Look, from the very beginning, we tried to look at how could we design a, the very best possible vaccine in terms of safety, efficacy, dosing, and, and frankly, administration and logistics. And, uh, and we had a platform that had been used in more than 100,000 patients that gave us a lot of confidence that the safety profile was very strong. Uh, we tested it thoroughly. And what's really important about our test, uh, David, our clinical trials, was we didn't start until September. And so just as we had come out of what I would say the low point over the summer, and we started seeing cases increase, certainly across the United States, but more importantly around the world, that's when our trial began. So we were really into you know, the, the heat of the, of the virus spread. Number two, uh, 40% of our patients were in the United States, but we had about 40% in Latin America, and we had about 15% that were actually in South Africa. So where, you know, one of the most uh, difficult strains is the South African strain, and, and by the way, 90% of the 15,000 uh, patients that uh, we were working on there, or th- those that were infected, actually had the South African variant. Uh, and so it gave us a lot of data, and what we saw were still very strong effectiveness rates. In fact, 85% in serious cases, and 100% of the time this far has kept patients out of the hospital and kept them from dying. Uh, so we know that this is going to be a really important tool for healthcare providers around the world. 
Uh, so uh, go forward and take a, give us a sense of where you're headed. Uh, do you envision a world in which we have different versions of the vaccine for different variants? Or do you think we know enough now to think we'll be able to have one version that will be good enough for all the variants? Well, David, look, I think all of these vaccines work extremely well. And the fact that we've seen these kind of results from uh, three different platforms now is very encouraging. Um, and my recommendation is everybody needs to get a shot as soon as they possibly can, because every time this virus spreads, it's transmitted, and uh, it, it could, has the potential to mutate, to cause another variant. And so the faster we can get people vaccinated to stop that from happening, the likely better outcome we're going to have. But the good news is also is because of these new platforms that we have uh, that are so much more adaptable, adaptable uh, that right now companies and ours included is working on next generation should that be necessary. So we're going to have to see how this plays out over the, the next six, the ne next nine months. We could be in a situation where we see a precipitous decline in the virus. We could see some surges in the fall that we'll need to stay protective of. Or we could see where we could need a booster shot or another shot further down the road, similar to what you would do with the flu shot. But that being said, we're in a much better place today uh, based upon all the great science, research, and engineering that, uh, that we've been doing. But Alex, when you have the 4 million or the 20 million or 100 million, who do you call to say, where should I ship them? Well, right now it's directly to the government. So in the United States, the government determines. It goes from uh, basically our, man, uh, our distribution facility and UPS trucks to McKesson. And then the government works very closely to distribute it to the states. They're working closely with the governors as well as with some of the large retail chains. And, you know, the good news is, David, I think now that we have a third vaccine out there, and, and by the way, kudos to Pfizer and Moderna for also significantly increasing their output. I would predict that in the second quarter, we're no longer going to be near a supply constraint. And as we get more doses out, we're going to be able to open up some of the requirements and restrictions regarding who can get the vaccine and who can't. And as a result, our throughput will go up. And I think we're going to see a big difference about the number of patients being vaccinated in the second quarter around our country, let alone the world. Finally, Alex, I know you well enough to know you, you think strategically. And it's become a commonplace for all of us to say the world's never going to be the same as it was pre-pandemic. But what about for Johnson & Johnson, for your industry? Uh, can you see ways in which you're going to make different decisions about deployment of capital, employment going forward? Does it change the nature of Johnson & Johnson's business, what we've been through here with this pandemic? Well, look, I'd say there's a few things that uh, are very important strategic considerations for us going forward. And the first is the importance of global public health. I mean, one thing that this pandemic has demonstrated that if we don't have strong, resilient public health systems in place, we don't have national security, economic security, or frankly, security as a society. And so making that investment, focusing more on durability, sustainability, and maybe even some redundancy versus just maniacally on effectiveness and efficiency is going to be critical for us, whether it's storing PPE, creating vaccine capacity, or the way that we even think about handling surges in hospital is, some, is a very important lesson, I believe, for our industry. The second one for me, David, is just technology. And whether it's the technology of the science, the way we were able to collect data, quickly take the genomic information, apply it to a platform, have three vaccines in a period of months versus what ordinarily would require years. The way we've been able to share data and information to understand where this virus is and it isn't. 
I think it represents just a significant increase in the way we use data and the way that we apply that in decision-making in healthcare systems uh, throughout the world. That was Johnson & Johnson Chairman and CEO, Alex Gorski. Coming up, Walmart as your friendly neighborhood bank. We talk with former FDIC head Sheila Baer about the risks and the opportunities. That's next on Wall Street Week on Bloomberg. Today's show is sponsored by Public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express, too. So, if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing. 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024 and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing. Member FINRA SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into partner banks where they earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com disclosures slash high dash yield dash account. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. We don't care what they do as a retailer, but we are concerned about the safety and soundness of the financial system. And this doesn't just relate to Walmart. It's any commercial industrial company uh, getting into banking and the threats it can potentially cause. That was former Ohio Congressman Paul Gilmore in 2007 after Walmart's failed attempt to get into banking. Fourteen years later, Walmart may be taking another look at taking on Wall Street, this time with two veterans from Goldman Sachs Consumer Finance Division. They left Goldman this week to join a fintech startup backed by Walmart and Ribbit Capital. Omar Ismail was the head of Goldman's consumer bank named Marcus, launched in 2016. It was meant to get Goldman into the consumer business, but it's been slow to gain traction. Here's Stephanie Cohen of Goldman Sachs. We want to be the leading digital banking platform. And the idea behind this is that we can be someone's holistic bank. Later this year, we plan to launch checking, and we really think that's the, the final step. Efforts by retailers and startups to begin offering core banking products pits fintech against Wall Street. You have fintech, big tech. You saw Walmart recently. So we just have to be prepared for intensified competition. We're, we're ready for it. We're very competitive and we expect to win. That's Jamie Dimon of J.P. Morgan Chase. Walmart has been trying to get into the banking business since the late 1990s. It first tried unsuccessfully to buy a bank in California. Then it tried again in 2005, applying for an industrial bank charter in Utah, which it hoped to use to process credit and debit card transactions internally. But the retailer faced a firestorm of opposition from lawmakers and banking industry groups. After two years and several delays, Walmart ultimately withdrew its application. Here's Walmart CEO Doug McMillan. You can go away quickly if you're not moving to where the customer wants to be served in the future. 
So what we're trying to do here is to get people to be really open to embracing what's next. Sheila Baer was the head of the FDIC when the agency temporarily suspended Walmart's banking ambitions and encouraged the retailer to partner with banks instead. I asked her what is different this time around. I'm not sure much is different. Uh, there's uh, financial technology has uh, uh, created new opportunities to provide financial services, especially in the payments uh, space with, with, with larger returns. So it may be that Walmart views this uh, as attractive. Um, as you say, they, they tried to get an ILC charter in 2005 and 2006. I was actually chair of the FDIC uh, when that was attempted. It was already an ongoing issue when I came to the FDIC. And I placed a moratorium on their application because there was so much controversy about it and asked Congress to resolve this, whether they really want a commercial entity like Walmart to own at an ILC, which is essentially a bank. And uh, Congress never really dealt with it. It's still permitted. Walmart at that point decided to withdraw the application, which I think was wise. The great financial crisis was you know, coming and we had other things to worry about at the FDIC. So a lot of the, the policy arguments are the same. I think financial technology perhaps makes this more attractive now to Walmart. Uh, I can only speculate. They haven't really provided much public information about what their plans are. As you say, most of the regulatory agencies disfavor a commercial entity owning a bank. There is an exception in this industrial bank, sort of an interesting phenomenon. Uh, what are the risks from not having the full regulatory force? applied to something like a Walmart? So, yeah, so I think, uh, so their concentration of power, I think the, the traditional prohibition we've had on this is, is the concentration of power of commercial, very large commercial entities, you know, being able to uh, build banking empires too. That's, that's a lot of concentrated power. So I think that's an issue. Also, uh, the impact on community banks, you know, given Walmart, you know, could provide a lot of competition. Uh, I think there's a fear there uh, that they could really hurt uh, community banks. So that's really uh, uh, the policy arguments against it. Um, but it's, uh, you know, in terms of safety and soundness, the other uh, difference with a regular bank charter is that there's no holding company supervision. So with an ILC for a regular bank that's owned by another entity, the Fed exercises authority, regulatory supervisory authority over that holding company. With an ILC, you don't have that. However, in the case of Walmart, I'm not really sure that's an issue. Uh, first, the FDIC always, when they approve these ILC charters, contractually require the parent to provide financial support to, to the ILC. And also, obviously, Walmart has very deep pockets. So it's hard to imagine a situation where a bank of theirs would, would get in trouble for one of, of the ability of the parent to support it. So I think safety and soundness is less of an issue uh, in this context, but certainly consumer protection and the impact on competition are very, very, very real issues. You mentioned, Sheila, the possible squeeze on local and community banks if the Walmarts of this world get into that business. Could there also be a squeeze on the bigger banks as a practical matter as more and more big commercial entities come into their neighborhood and compete with them, for example, for deposit taking? Well, there could very well be. And, uh, you know, again, it's, it's that may be a benefit. Uh, it's a uh, one, you know, we've had with this terrible pandemic, we've had an accelerating trend towards, you know, a lot of branches closing, remote provision of, of financial services. It's less cost. It's, it doesn't involve people personally interacting with each other, which has become an issue with this pandemic. But there are still a lot of people who want a physical location to go to for their banking services. And Walmart can provide that with all its stores, uh, elderly people, you know, people, lower income people who don't have access to the Internet. The, the ability to 
also provide not just uh, technology, technologically remote services, but also a physical location, I think, is an advantage uh, that, that Walmart could provide and a benefit to that segment of the population that still wants, a, wants a, an actual banking physical space to go to. So yes, and in that context, their, their vast array of stores could be highly competitive with these larger banks, uh, branch operations. So it's, you're right, it's not clear that it would just be an impact on community banks. Well, you raise a very interesting possibility, I think. We have talked for some time about the unbanked and the underbanked in the United States, typically in poor communities, you suggest, uh, and how we address that. We haven't been successful terribly in doing that. Could a Walmart moving in actually help address that problem in the country? Well, I think they could. I mean, I think lower income and lower middle income Americans are, are, are a very big part of Walmart's uh, uh, customer base. And so they're coming to those stores already. So yeah, I mean, I think we need to know what Walmart plans. <laughs> if they just plan to, you know, fatten their profit margins, well, good for them, but you know, that's not really a public policy reason to provide the charter, approve the charter. But if, yeah, if they can leverage that reach that they have with the unbanked and underbanked populations to provide a fuller panoply of financial services at low cost, at mainstream cost, right? So people can go to payday lenders and pawn shops now and get financial services at a very high cost. But if Walmart uh, can democratize, uh, further democratize credit and banking services and provide at the same cost that you and I get, then I think that would be hugely beneficial. So, you know, we need to stay tuned in terms of what Walmart uh, is, uh, what the value proposition is that they're contemplating, but there's certainly a lot of potential there. That was Sheila Baer, former head of the FDIC. Coming up, what broke the supply chain on chips just when we needed it most? We talked with supply chain expert Vindia Vakil of Resilin. That's next on Wall Street Week on Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. The world's manufacturing supply chains are showing signs of strain, and semiconductors, or chips, are among the hardest hit. The combination of the pandemic, policy decisions, and the growing demand for electric vehicles created a perfect storm for the industry. Here's GM CEO Mary Barra. This is an industry issue. Of course, we're working every single day with a cross-functional team to look for opportunities of how do we minimize the impact. In January, Honda said it will cut domestic output at one of its Japanese factories, while Nissan is adjusting production of its Note hatchback model. GM announced this week that it's extending temporary shutdowns at three of its North American plants because of the ongoing semiconductor shortage. Well, the first quarter, uh, we have had some uh, disruptions and idled some of our plants, but it is still a volatile situation. That's Daimler CEO Ola Kalinius. It's not just car makers. A shortage of chips affects everything from 5G phones to medical devices. Here's Huawei's Andy Purdy. Combination of the coronavirus and the, the impact on, the, not to be too technical, the entity list, but the ability of American companies to sell to us and others, it's really had a very negative effect on us. The shortage has gotten so bad that President Biden stepped in this week with an executive order directing a government-wide supply chain review for critical goods. We need to make sure these supply chains are secure and reliable. I'm directing senior officials in my administration to work with industrial leaders to identify solutions to this semiconductor shortfall. The problem has been brewing since 2019, and President Donald Trump's trade war with China also played a part in the supply crunch. Roughly 10% of the world's chip production comes from SMIC, a semiconductor company that's partially owned by the Chinese government. 
In 2020, the U.S. restricted American companies from selling to SMIC. So by dealing with the availability of high-tech, particularly semiconductors, to Huawei and to ZTE, we've slowed that down. That was former Commerce Secretary Wilbur Ross. To get a better sense of just how bad the problem is and what can be done about it, we talked with Bindia Vakil, CEO of Resilink, the leading provider of supply chain mapping services. And she said that the problem has been a long time coming. This has been building since last year. And now we are looking at an extremely constrained environment. It started with two big factory fires at Japanese semiconductor plants, one in July, one in October. Then there were some labor strikes at chip-making facilities in Europe. And then you combine that with the upheaval from COVID. We had fires in California, record hurricane season, winter storms, the container issues that we have experienced, container shortages. And then we saw Boeing 777 grounding, which, ground, which affects air shipment capacity. And just last week, we heard that in Taiwan, there is a water shortage that is creating constrained water supplies, which are very essential for wafer fabrication assembly operations. So, so it's a very interesting situation. Well, right and now. is it just a fluke? I mean, or were there fundamental underlying weaknesses in the supply chain? Because what you just described sounds like who could have predicted all those things would come together at one pl- time? Um, the, the world of supply chain risk, I have to say, it, it is a constant thing. There are, in a given year, Resilink monitors over 300 factory fires alone. Add to that supply chain um, risks due to hurricanes, earthquakes, labor strikes, transportation issues. And what you have is a, a situation in supply chain where normal is, is disrupted. <laughs> Now, we have the Biden administration saying we're going to get our arms around this. We're going to start with information, making sure we know what's going on, something I think you may have some insight into in Resolink. Is that the right first step? Absolutely. In fact, I would say the direction that the government is going with supply chain right now, they first, uh, most critical, they have called supply chain resilience a matter of national security. This is the first thing that they needed to do, and they have finally done it. Um, Understanding the supply chain landscape, who the critical players are, what are the global sites and regions that are critical to the supply chain. This is the first step in helping us make informed decisions about what are those sources of constrained supply that we need to address, where we need to hold backup supplies, where we need to hold extra inventory, and what it is that we need to do to avoid the similar problems that we experienced in PPE shortages last year that brought the healthcare industry to their knees. So it's really critical and and mapping supply chains and understanding those global dependencies is the first step. Have we been spending too little on our supply chain? Because as I listen to you and as you talk about increased inventories, increased capacity, that sounds like money that we, in fact, we've been running at too tight a tolerance. Absolutely. The first thing we did in the last 20 years is we went um, overseas and uh, globalized. Not the wrong thing to do. Uh, You not only globalize your supply chain to take advantage of lower cost supplies, you take advantage of emerging markets and the demand there as well. That was Vindia Vakil, CEO of Resolute. Coming up, we wrap up the week, as always, with our special contributor, Larry Summers of Harvard. This is Wall Street Week on Bloomberg.
Today's show is sponsored by Public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express, too. So, if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing. 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024 and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing, member FINRA SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into partner banks where they earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high-yield-account. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. And we're going to conclude our week as we do every single week with our special contributor, Larry Summers of Harvard. So, Larry, thanks so much for being back. One of the big events of the week was Fed Chair Jay Powell speaking at a Wall Street Journal event. He talked about a lot of things, including the bond yield, things like that. But one of the things he addressed was inflation. And he admitted as how they're keeping a close eye on it, maybe because of some of the things you've said, frankly, uh, and that they are not going to repeat the mistakes of the 60s and 70s, as he referred to it. Uh, what does he need to do to avoid that? I sure hope they don't repeat the mistakes of the 60s and 70s because they were hugely important, not just for inflation, not just for macroeconomic stability, but for the whole politics and attitude of uh, the country. They're going to need to look in hard-headed ways and to be prepared to not make excuses each month pointing to a different factor when inflation picks up. And they're going to need to remember that their priority is the macroeconomy. When I see them say they won't raise rates until um, diversity groups, unemployment rates are appropriate, I get nervous because the Fed can't really control those issues. Those are issues for anti-discrimination law. Those are issues for fiscal policy. Uh, those are issues for labor market uh, programs. And so if the Fed sets out to target the unemployment rate of particular groups, without regard to inflation, that would be a good way to make really serious uh, inflation. If they take inflation seriously, they monitor closely, and they're prepared to cause pain, they will be able to control inflation. But if instead they say, oh, we've got credibility, inflation expectations are anchored, and inflation is not something we have to worry about, ironically, the more optimistic they are about inflation uh, being under control, the less likely it is to actually be under control. So Fed Chair Powell gave us a little bit of a hint about how he's going to approach this because he addressed a couple of things. He said some of the uptick in prices that we're expecting is going to be base effects as there's a reopening effect as people come back. And also there may be some particular choke points in the supply chain. We're not going to pay much attention to those because that's transient. How do you tell the difference between transient inflation and something more troubling? That's why they've got a staff of a few hundred economists and precisely to make those distinctions. And they got to look at all the data they can. What 
I'm worried about when I hear that kind of talk is not that it isn't right. He's right about the base year effects. He's right about specific sectors. But every great inflation is made by a central bank that dismisses it as due to transient factors. And so at a certain point, when you start having a transient factor every month, then you've maybe got a permanent factor going over going uh, overall. So it takes a lot of worry about inflation to make there not be uh, inflation. This is a classic example of self-denying prophecy. The more the Fed is fearful of inflation, the more likely they are to avoid it. The more the Fed is complacent about inflation, the more likely they are to have it. So, Larry, one of the things that's a big item on the agenda now as we are working our way through the stimulus package is infrastructure. President Biden has said that he wants to go on to that. He had meetings at the White House this week to talk about it. Uh, so we've talked in the past about the stimulus package, maybe what should have been done, what could have been done. Before we get started on infrastructure, give us some advice. How do you do it the right way and how do you do it the wrong way? Here are two broad principles, uh, David. One is Democrats are right that we need much more money on infrastructure. And Republicans are right that we need much more efficient regulation, much more rapid environmental approvals, and much more efficient uh, procurement. And we need to do a politics of both and rather than either or when it comes to infrastructure. The other thing is, this is an area where the public sector and the private sector have to uh, collaborate. Some infrastructure is public, uh, repairing the potholes and the roads in New York City. Some is private, building out um, a 5G wireless uh, system. Some is uh, joint, uh, toll roads, bridges, electric utilities, uh, and the like. We've got to find creative ways of bringing the public and private sectors together around the infrastructure uh, issues. And we need to understand that infrastructure is much more than bricks and mortar. So infrastructure is good for all of us because it makes our lives better, presumably. But there's another purpose as well, which is increased productivity as we go forward. It's future growth, essentially, we're investing in. A lot of us haven't had the experience you've had being a macroeconomist in the U.S. government. We've run companies or parts of companies. When we make a decision about capital investment, we take a look at the payback. When do we get the payback? What's the long, what's the prospects of payback? Do you look at it that way? I mean, how do you decide which projects are the most likely to really increase productivity and increase growth in the out years? I think you got to look at the overall social return. Some of that is the extra money that's going to get uh, produced. Some of that is the carbon that's going to get mitigated that otherwise would have a substantial uh, social cost. Some of that is the incremental business activity that's going uh, to be enabled. Some of that is, and it's not always easy, putting the valuation on uh, amenities that people are going to enjoy. Central Park is a kind of infrastructure. Very hard to put a price on Central Park, but even harder to imagine New York City without uh, Central Park. And so we need to think very broadly 
as we think about the benefits of infrastructure. There's a SPAC frenzy, some people think, in the country right now. And so we treat you as an expert, which you certainly are, but let's treat you as a fact witness, the way I used to when I put witnesses on in the courtroom. You actually have gotten involved in a SPAC here, as I understand it. You're an investor in a company that now is being acquired by a SPAC. Tell us about it. It's called uh, State's Title, right? I'm on the I'm on the board and have been uh, an investor for a number of years. Our company has the potential to transform title insurance, the type of insurance where most of the time there's the highest ratio of premiums paid to benefits paid out. And this company is going to transform its efficiency by using uh, artificial intelligence. It's a huge business opportunity ultimately to transform the process of buying a house and make it pleasant and fast rather than excruciating and slow. This is the most exciting thing that I've been part of in the fintech area and the business area since I was on the board of Square before it became a unicorn. And I think there's a similar possibility for financial innovation, not for the benefit of money, but for the benefit of making people's lives uh, better. And at that all important juncture for all of us, when uh, we're buying a home. And I think the SPAC is going to enable this company to raise more capital, more quickly, for more growth, and more transformation than ever would have been possible even several years ago. So let's wrap this up with a rapid fire, Summer says. Number one, we talked about Jay Powell, the Federal Reserve Chair earlier. Uh, Do you expect him to be reappointed? He should be. He certainly should be. He's done a great job and continuity in that role is a very important thing. Uh, On the other side, we learned this week that Neera Tandon's nomination to be the Director of Office of Management of Budget has been withdrawn. You know her. Uh, Who do you expect to succeed her? Nobody who will be able to do that job as well as uh, she could have. She is a formidable uh, talent, a person of great intellectual capacity, great energy and uh, spirit and I am just really disappointed that the nation's not going to have her in that role. But knowing how resilient she is, I know she will go on to serve and to serve with great distinction um, in uh, President Biden's administration. And finally, Larry, uh, what's the future of the minimum wage? Looks like it's not going to be part of this stimulus package. What's the future? My guess is we'll have a minimum wage that'll be way above seven twenty-five but won't reach $15. And I think that's probably the right kind of prudent compromise. Okay, thank you so much, Larry. That's Larry Summers, our special contributor. And of course, he's from Harvard. Finally, one more thought. We lost a giant this week. And by we, I mean those who walk the corridors of power in Washington, those who sit in the boardrooms of our corporations, those who care about racial justice, those of us who care about our country. Vernon Jordan did it all, or all of it that truly matters, and he changed it all. First as a civil rights lawyer and leader at the NAACP, the United Negro College Fund, and the National Urban League. And then, when he saw we needed changing from the inside, he became an influential lawyer and lobbyist in Washington, an investment banker in New York, a corporate board director, and a close advisor to presidents. He was larger than life in every way, in his stature, in his deep baritone voice and measured tones, in that twinkle in his eye, 
but most of all in his quiet moral authority that he brought to every gathering and to every decision. And for those of us blessed to witness it firsthand, it was sometimes as much how he did it as what he did. A loyal and true friend, always there to listen, to remind us of our true north. At a time of so much division, so much bickering, we need a Vernon Jordan more than ever. The grace, the wisdom, and most of all, the respect he showed everyone. Respect for those he agreed with, and every bit as much for those with whom he could not agree. Yes, we lost a giant this week. I fear we will not see his like again, but I so hope that I'm wrong for all of our sakes. That does it for this episode of Wall Street Week. I'm David Weston. This is Bloomberg. See you next week. Join Bloomberg in San Francisco or virtually on May 7th for The Future Investor, Data-Powered Transformations. This 2024 event series will examine how data is not only playing a pivotal role in investment decisions, but serves as a driving force behind the construction of innovative investable enterprises. This series is proudly sponsored by Invesco QQQ. Register at BloombergLive.com slash Future Investor slash Radio.